You're listening to The Dogs Programme, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools, and we're here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. And we give you the definition of that every week too. It's public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it is public in access for both students, parents and employees, all employees, and it is and should be public in ownership and control. And for that reason, it's the only one that should be publicly funded because it's the only one that can be publicly accountable. Well, we know that private schools are none of those things and never can be and never have been and never want to be. So to fund them with public money, according to the dogs, is a very foolish thing to do indeed. Now, our press release 995 is about the National Schools Reform Agreement, which we believe is doomed to fail. Uh, the Albanese government are not prepared to confront the private sector, as no Lib Lab government has been prepared to do since the 1950s. And they always want to have some kind of a compromise and sound good with these things called needs policies or talking about disadvantaged students or parents who aren't well educated so their children don't give a chance. Well, as the dogs just have a very simple answer to all of this. Let's talk about not just equality of opportunity, but keeping the schools equal, keeping the schools open to everyone and properly funded, as they do in Finland, and as we did uh, before 1964. So um, we've written this um, press release 995, and we've quoted very substantially from Trevor Coval, who in his own inimitable way from Save Our Schools, has done a lot of research into the terms of reference of the uh, Board of Inquiry set up to look at funding in Australia. There's nothing new about any of this, according to the dogs. Terms of reference are, of course, what determine the reports. And um, if the terms of reference aren't right, then you're not going to get the right report, are you? Well, here we have Andy to tell us all about it. Over to you, Andy. Thanks, Jean. This is Press Release 995. National Schools Reform Agreement doomed to fail, as all needs policies have founded since 1964. In his usual well-researched fashion, Trevor Cobbold from Save Our Schools has pinpointed the terms of reference definition of equity provided by the expert panel reviewing the National Schools Reform Agreement as the Achilles heel of all attempts to equalise educational opportunity in Australia. Ever since the Schools Commission of 1973, all attempts to assist the disadvantaged students in Australian schools have failed miserably. Why? Simply because the wealthy religious schools and their bureaucracies have to be saturated with public funding largesse before a few dollars can be flung to the poor in the public sector. This has involved political terms of reference provided to panels of educational inquiry. In 1973, the Schools Commission tried to put equality of opportunity into effect by recommending wealthy schools like King's and Xavier lose some public funding. They categorised schools A to H accordingly. The wealthy schools kicked up a fuss and were swiftly recategorised as needy. None lost a penny and the state aid wrought was well and truly on. In 2011, Gonski questioned the glaring inequalities caused by state aid to the private sector, but was instructed that no school would lose a dollar. The result is current overfunding of private and chronic underfunding of public schools. 
it is doubtful whether anything will change. In 2023, Trevor Cobbold notes, the expert panel reviewing the National Schools Reform Agreement, NSRA, has failed to adequately define equity goals for the next agreement. Its consultation paper released last month adopted a flawed definition proposed by the Productivity Commission in its report on the agreement. The panel must revise its definition of equity in its final report to the government in October. Failure to do so will mean continued failure to address the massive achievement gaps between rich and poor. The current NSRA conspicuously fails to provide a clearly defined equity goal. It has perpetrated different meanings and interpretations of what constitutes equity in education. This in turn leads to policy confusion and even contradictory approaches to improving equity. As a result, many students continue to be denied an adequate education and achievement gaps between privileged and less privileged students continue. It also allows governments to avoid accountability for these failures and to misdirect funding increases to school sectors least in need. To its credit, the expert panel has recognised this failure and has ventured a definition in its consultation paper. The Productivity Commission definition adopted by the panel covers two distinct aims. The first is to ensure schooling equips each student with the basic skills required for success in life, equity in minimum or basic skills. The second is to reduce or eliminate differences in outcomes across students with different backgrounds, experiences and needs, equity across students, particularly for the priority equity cohorts in the NSRA, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students, students living in regional, rural and remote locations, students with disability and students from educationally disadvantaged backgrounds. This definition is quite different from that proposed in the original Gonski Review. It therefore felt compelled to state its view of what equity means. The Gonski Report adopted a dual equity objective which was similar to that proposed by Save Our Schools in its submission to the review. The report said, no student in Australia should leave school without the basic skills and competencies needed to participate in the workforce and lead successful and productive lives. It explained that this meant attainment of Year 12 or its equivalent as a minimum standard of education for all. Australia's school system needs to help ensure that the targets for students attaining Year 12 or equivalent qualifications are met and that students leave school with the skills and capacities required to actively participate in society and contribute to Australia's prosperity. The report also adopted a clear social equity goal. It said, The panel has defined equity in schooling as ensuring that differences in educational outcomes are not the result of differences in wealth, income, power or possessions. Equity in this sense does not mean that all students are the same or will achieve the same outcomes. Central to the panel's definition of equity is the belief that the underlying talents and abilities of students that enable them to succeed in schooling are not distributed differently among children from different socioeconomic status, ethnic or language backgrounds, or according to where they live or go to school. This dual equity goal was abandoned by the Gillard government at the outset. It was replaced by a weak equity goal of improving the results of disadvantaged students. Even this weak commitment was ignored by successive coalition governments who showered Catholic and independent schools with funding increases despite the fact that they enrol only a minority of low SES, Indigenous, remote area and disability students. The expert panel must refocus on equity in education as the key education goal for the next NSRA. Unfortunately, the Productivity Commission's definition is not up to the task and will likely perpetuate the confusion about equity. There are several problems with this definition, namely, 
Its reference to basic skills to succeed in life is too vague and does not provide an operational goal for policymakers. It suggests that the social equity goal is only to remove differences in outcomes between the priority equity cohorts rather than between these groups and highly advantaged groups. It is open to being interpreted as supporting equality of outcomes by all students. It presents a choice between reducing or eliminating differences in outcomes between students of different backgrounds. And it excludes low socioeconomic status SES students from the priority equity cohorts. The first component of the Productivity Commission definition of equity in education recognises the need for all students to achieve a minimum standard of education. However, achieving basic skills is too vague and open-ended to provide sufficient guidance for policymakers and the Australian community. It fails to specify the level of education needed for all students to participate successfully in adult society. The basic skills necessary for a successful life can be interpreted in several ways. For example, it could be interpreted as achieving basic literacy and numeracy skills, completing Year 10, or completing the compulsory standards of different jurisdictions, which generally require completion of Year 10 and participation in education, training or employment until age 17. Basic literacy and numeracy are not enough for participation in modern society. In its submission to the review, Save Our Schools proposes that the minimum standard of education that should be expected for all students is that set by the original Gonski report, namely that all students should complete Year 12 or an equivalent vocational certificate. Completing Year 12 involves more than basic literacy and numeracy. It involves additional knowledge and skills to participate in adult society. The Productivity Commission definition is also imprecise regarding removing differences between students from different backgrounds. The definition can be interpreted as only removing differences in outcomes between the priority equity cohorts mentioned. This is not enough to be consistent with the broad definition adopted by the Gonskiber report because it fails to specify that the differences to be reduced and eliminated are those between the priority equity cohorts and highly advantaged groups. At present, there are huge achievement gaps between high socioeconomic status students and low equity cohorts such as low socioeconomic status, indigenous and remote area students. Overcoming these differences is the fundamental challenge facing the education system because they result in one group of students having more privileged access to higher education, high income and status occupations and positions of power in society. It amounts to structural discrimination against some social groups and it contributes significantly to the social reproduction of privilege and disadvantage. It hardens social divisions and social hierarchies. The wording of the Productivity Commission's definition could potentially lead to confusion and divert attention from differences in outcomes across social groups of students. In particular, the description of the second equity component as equity across students could be interpreted as something closer to equality of outcomes across students, which is neither a feasible nor a desirable aim. Different students, even if matched by SES and other aspects of their background, will still end up with different interests and talents that lead to different outcomes. This is due to the inevitable variability of human experiences and human responses to those experiences. This is part of being human, and we should never aim for equality of outcomes. Only that these outcomes are not significantly determined by systematic differences in social background. Those opposed to equity goals, for whatever reason, might try to create confusion, as they have in the past, by arguing that equality of outcomes across students is not achievable, implying that equity across social groups is equally impossible. Another problem with the Productivity Commission's definition is that it sets the social equity goal as to reduce or eliminate differences in outcomes. 
This implies a choice between reduction or elimination. There should not be any such choice. The social equity goal should be to reduce and eliminate differences in outcomes. The Productivity Commission adopts a catch-all category of students from educationally disadvantaged backgrounds. This is strange because the preceding groups mentioned in the Commission's definition are also considered as being from educationally disadvantaged backgrounds. There seems to be a reluctance by the Commission and the panel to identify low SES students as a specific equity group despite the fact that they are the biggest educationally disadvantaged group in society. Furthermore, in accepting the Commission's definition, the expert panel has ignored the Minister's statement in announcing the panel that low SES students are one of the groups that the next NSRA will focus on to improve achievement. This disregard of the Minister's concern to support low SES students is somewhat pointed and surprising. This failure to specify the largest disadvantaged group as a priority equity cohort could result in these students being ignored or given lower priority in the allocation of school resources. For example, in its submission on the consultation paper, the National Catholic Education Commission has affirmed the panel's support for the Productivity Commission's definition of equity and does not recommend any support for the learning of low SES students. It excludes low SES students from its list of additional priority cohorts which were to be added to the next NSRA. The Productivity Commission definition shifts the focus from wealth, income, power or possessions towards a narrower emphasis on parents with lower educational attainments. Parents with lower levels of education may, on average, have more limited skills to support their children through their education, less familiarity with what higher educational achievements require, and may in some cases set lower aspirations for their children. But it is also clear that parents with low incomes have limitations on how much material support, including use of books and creative toys in the early years, which can play an important role in education outcomes. As a result of all these problems, Save Our Schools has recommended that the expert panel should define equity in education more precisely to provide a practical guide to policy formulation. It recommends a definition for inclusion in the NSRA. This consists of dual equity goals, one for all individual students and one for social groups of students. The dog's position. Dogs argue that the basic mistake in considering educational funding arrangements in Australia does not start and end with students and their parents. It starts with the objectives and principles behind the establishment of schools. You cannot consider concepts like equality of opportunity or equity unless the schools themselves have the objective of inclusiveness of all students, employees and parents. Private schools are diametrically opposed to this principle. Boosting them with not just public funding but favoured public funding is completely counterproductive if the national goal is a democratic, inclusive and economically productive one. Only public schools which are public in purpose, outcome, access, ownership, control, sole public funding and accountability can do the job. This is common sense. The state aid experiment of the last six decades has failed. It is time Australia bit the bullet and followed Finland or even the lessons of its own 19th century history. And back to you, Jean. Well, thanks, Andy. Yes, um, we think that it's time to talk about not equity and not equality of opportunity and disadvantaged students and wealthy schools. It's time to talk about making the schools equal. Let's talk about schools being open to everyone and properly publicly funded and properly public in every sense of that term. But we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back to talk about all things industrial relations for teachers. 
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Well, we hope you're still listening to the Dogs Program and our next pretty substantial uh, article deals with industrial relations. Uh, There's been a lot of talk about teachers and lack of teachers and teachers resigning and teachers not being properly paid. And, of course, the teachers have been out and about um, battling for better funding and also for better conditions. And up in New South Wales, they've actually been getting somewhere. And down here, even in Victoria, there's been a few wins. But there's been also a lot on the ABC and in the media about the industrial agreements and behind-the-scenes unions, not shenanigans but operations, which are behind what the Albanese government is now coming up with. So let's hear about it. More secure jobs and better pay. This is from the Australian Education Union. Over to you, Sorrel. Thanks, Jean. So this article is by the AEU, the Australian Education Union, and it is entitled More Secure Jobs, Better Pay. If you weren't sure how industrial agreements and behind-the-scenes union work affects your day-to-day work, the Albanese government's changes to the Fair Work Act, built by the union movement, are about to make a massive difference. Changing governments changes people's working lives, says Maxine Sharkey, AEU Federal TAFE Secretary and General Secretary of the New South Wales Teachers' Federation. I know that sounds grandiose, but it's absolutely true. Think about a woman who's now going to be able to access paid domestic violence leave even though she's a casual worker. That will be a game-changer for her. Sharkey is talking about recent hard-fought union wins for women and the changes to the federal government's fair work legislation, the Secure Jobs Better Pay Bill that passed Parliament in December 2022. These new laws represent the most significant changes to Australia's industrial relations system since the start of the Fair Work Act in 2009, which itself replaced the unfair employer-biased work choices legislation of 2005. It's not just unions or the government saying that these are momentous changes, both to the Fair Work Act and the workings of the Fair Work Commission. Since December, <clears throat> since December, human resources departments and industrial law firms around the country have been scrambling to create fact sheets and guidelines for employers about their new contractual responsibilities and duties of care many of which came into effect immediately, with others coming in from June to December 2023. It's been a fast timeline, and Sharkey says that most TAFE teachers, already overworked and trying to adapt to rapid changes and new pressures in the system, won't yet understand the practical benefits they can extract from the new legislation, especially as it relates to gender equity and casualization. At the broadest level, the objectives of the Fair Work Act itself have been changed to include promoting job security and gender equality. For TAFE's highly feminised and casualised workforce, a national gender pay gap that sits at 22.8% across all industries, these changes bring in benefits that will become clearer in coming years as workers see increased rights to request flexibility 
job security, and equal remuneration. Flexible working arrangements can now be requested for conditions such as pregnancy, caring, childcare, and disability, and also for being 55 or older, women struggling with menopause, take note. Flexibility can also be requested around experiencing family or domestic violence and caring for someone who has been a victim of it. The prohibition on sexual harassment in the workplace now puts the onus on employers to proactively prevent it, where previously it was treated as a type of workplace bullying. The prohibition also applies to non-employees in the workplace, students, volunteers and contractors, and a newly streamlined sexual harassment complaints process has also been brought into the Fair Work Commission to address this. Think of a 19-year-old who's just got an apprenticeship in heavy vehicle mechanics, says Sharkey. She's protected in a way she wasn't before. Other changes that will positively impact women, parents, carers, and people of any gender include prohibiting pay secrecy, extending anti-discrimination protection on three new grounds, breastfeeding, gender identity, and intersex status, Changes to extending unpaid parental leave, including giving the Fair Work Commission power to deal with such disputes. Creation of expert panels at the Fair Work Commission to focus on pay equity in the care and community sector. Job advertisements can no longer include pay rates that breach the Fair Work Act or a modern award slash enterprise agreement. One of the biggest impacts for TAFE teachers and TAFE support workers will be around the changes to laws limiting fixed-term contracts to two years, after which employees must be offered permanent employment. Effective from the 6th of December, this has the potential to transform employment in all institutions that rely on rolling fixed-term contracts as part of their business model, including public TAFE and university vet programs. These employers will no doubt fight for exemptions and argue the need to maintain a casual workforce, but with increasing scrutiny around wage theft and exploitation, and with this fundamental policy shift towards job security, those employers are finally on notice. The changes to the Fair Work Act have also outlawed a key bargaining tactic, first used by Murdoch University, then adopted by other post-secondary education employers of terminating or threatening to terminate enterprise agreements as a blackmailing technique to get workers to accept reduced pay or conditions. Sharkey says that insecure work is the situation for far more than 50% of the TAFE workforce around Australia. She says these changes are way overdue and workers deserve the dignity of reliable income and hours. At the moment, it's akin to when you watch old movies and you see people down by the waterside competing against one another, begging to get some work for the day. Teachers might randomly get a phone call to work, and at the end of that shift or a fixed term, they no longer have a job and need to beg for work. Soon, however, if you've been engaged for two years as a fixed-term employee, your next contract must be offered as a permanent position. The opposite problem of keeping and attracting enough qualified specialist teaching staff to meet demand in trades is well evidenced. Pay rates are often lower than in industry, and teacher turnover is high, especially once new lecturers realise the workload and responsibilities. 
John Miles, a veteran metal trades teacher at TASTAFE in Hobart, sees this problem and says the only way to attract teachers to trades is to offer them a good quality of life, that is some compensation for pay, which is essentially going backwards against inflation, flexible conditions, good holidays, and a genuine support for teaching and administrative tasks. There's been a massive turnover in plumbing, for instance, says Miles. They're going from a high-paid job in industry where they've got a vehicle and their fuel's paid for, and then they come to TAFE and they find this huge workload, all this responsibility, and constantly changing goalposts, requiring them to upgrade their qualifications. I had to do it four times so far and spend my own free time to complete it. A lot of people just say, nah, and they leave. Adding to the complexity of the Tasmanian workforce and to Miles' sense of general unease is the fact that TASTAFE, as of the 1st of July 2022, transferred from a state public sector employer to a national system employer under the Fair Work Act. This meant there were two sets of employees on different awards and conditions with existing transferring staff on a 35-hour week with an extra week of holidays and new staff on a higher pay rate working a 38-hour week with less generous entitlements and no choice for staff to move between the two. Examples like this demonstrate some of the complexities in the fragmented national TAFE workforce and the challenges that will be faced in the revamped Fair Work Commission with its new powers to resolve disputes quickly. All agreements must now be measured against an updated Better Off Overall boot test. Requiring agreements to have better entitlements for employers than any relevant award. For Simon Bailey, AEU Tasmania TAFE Division President, there's good reason to hope for sensible, flexible outcomes by using this better off overall test. In March, Bailey was involved with the successful AEU and United Workers Union, UWU, application to ensure new TAS TAFE employees under the Fair Work Act were given the same terms and conditions as the non-transferring employees still under state public sector agreements. This came on top of Bailey's good news in February around the union's win of significant pay rises, one-off payments and new equipment for TASTAFE education support personnel. A good strong agreement has to be flexible and progressive, says Bailey. It has to note that people are working differently these days. In our talks with TASTAFE, they didn't see the need for any of that. But you have to have a good agreement if you're going to attract and keep good people in the system. Attracting and keeping good people in TASTAFE is an emergency, says Bailey. And it was even so before the introduction of the enormously popular fee-free places. In 2021-2022, TASTAFE advertised 120 teaching positions and 50 were filled, while 114 non-teaching positions were advertised and only 76 were filled. Teachers were working hours far beyond what they were paid and on the verge of burnout. The fee-free places have only emphasised our need to get more employees into the system to deliver these classes and more personnel to support these students, says Bailey. 
In South Australia, AEU South Australia TAFE organiser Angela Dean reports similar problems around overwork, understaffing and TAFE South Australia's mismanagement of scheduling fee-free programs before engaging staff. But Dean also reports a recent win for employees around the flexibility in mechanical engineering. The employer was seeking to standardise the hours of all lecturers in trades to seven hours a day, five days a week, Dean says. This was not what the industry wanted or what apprentices needed. We put forth a formal dispute and TAFE South Australia has taken a step back. So we've maintained our compressed work week for lecturers where they either work a nine day fortnight or a four and a half day week. A lot of our enterprise agreements center on this flexibility to program delivery because we need to be the industry based and student specific. We can't be too standardized. It doesn't work in any business case. It's early days for the new Fair Work Act and the Empowered Fair Work Commission, but its principles fit soundly with the realities of modern working life and with the necessary rebuilding of the national vocation education training sector with TAFE as its anchor. So that article was written by Rochelle Semienovich and was originally published in the Australian TAFE Teacher Winter 2023 edition. Back over to you, Jean. Well, thank you very much for that, Sol. I'm sure that there's quite a few listeners, teacher, amongst them teachers, who will be very interested to find out just what Albanese's uh, proposals and, Mr. and, of course, Burke's proposals are and what they mean for teachers. But um, we'll have a bit of a break and come back and have a look at um, a very interesting report, excerpts from a report from the Australia Institute, which we were talking about last week. Are you a 3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. Call 03 9419 8377 or sign up online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Well, we hope that you're still listening to the Dogs Program because there's some pretty meaty stuff still to come. Uh, you might have read, particularly if you are a teacher and uh, are interested in the Australian Education Union, but also in the um, Australia Institute, which is um, not the Menzies Institute, but um, I think a, a fairly uh, fairly good um, think tank. They have done a lot of work on the case for investing in public schools and the economic and social benefits of public schooling in Australia. It's a very substantial report, and we, we suggest that you go online and you read all of it, but we're going to hear uh, from uh, excerpts from it on the direct economic footprint uh, left by uh, public schools on our society and the broader fiscal and social benefits of public education. So once again, over to Sarah. Thanks, Jean. So this article is by Eliza Littleton, Fiona MacDonald and Jim Stanford, who are writing about the case for investing in public schools, the economic and social benefits of public schooling in Australia. Australia's public school system constitutes a major economic industry, generating hundreds of thousands of jobs and billions of dollars in economic activity. Public schools enrolled some 2.6 million primary and secondary students. 
from the years of 2021 to 2022, constituting close to two-thirds of schoolgoers. The remaining 1.4 million students were enrolled in private schools, Catholic and independent. Data from the Australian Curriculum Assessment and Reporting Authority, ACARA, reports 283,590 full-time equivalent employment positions in public schools in 2022. Since many school workers are employed part-time, the total number of people working in public schools is significantly higher than this, especially in administration and support roles. Over two-thirds, 68% of FTEs were teaching positions, whilst the remaining 32% performed various administration and support functions. Just over 63% of teaching staff in Australia work at public schools, which is slightly lower than the public system's share of student enrolments. More notably, only 43.8% of specialist support staff are employed at public schools far lower than the public system's share of students. This is despite the fact that public schools enrol a disproportionately large share of disadvantaged students who are more likely to need specialist support. As major employers, public schools pay wages and salaries which contribute further to economic activity. Exact aggregate data on wages and salaries paid by the public school system is not available. However, an estimate can be derived from ABS data on the total output of the combined primary, secondary and preschool education system, both public and private, and separate data on the total expenditures of public schools, which totaled $44 billion in 2021, according to the ACARA data. Public school spending accounts for some 59% of total expenditure on the broader school system, and this suggests total compensation paid to public school staff of about $32 billion. The wages and salaries paid to public school staff are then used in short order to purchase goods and services for personal consumption. This contributes further to overall aggregate demand, economic growth and stronger business conditions in downstream consumer industries. An important dimension to keep in mind in considering the economic and social impacts of public schools is that the large majority of staff at these schools are women. According to ACARA 2022 data, 77% of staff at public schools are women, including 73% of teaching staff and 84% of non-teaching staff. Since the workforce is so highly feminized, there are important gendered benefits the adequate resourcing of public schools. Labor compensation accounts for the bulk of total expenses in, public, in the public school system and thus constitute the largest share of value added in education. ABS data indicates that labour compensation accounts for about 90% of total direct value added within schools. The remainder consists of small amounts of gross operating surplus, including depreciation of buildings and capital, mixed income and indirect taxes paid to government. We estimate the total GDP of public schools in Australia at $35 billion, on the assumption that the overall labour intensity of expenditure in the public school system is broadly equivalent to the average for the overall primary and secondary and preschool system, as reported in the input-output data. 
The primary and secondary education sectors have been important spurs to economic growth and job creation in Australia in recent years. Public schools have created tens of thousands of new jobs as they expanded to meet the needs of a growing population and contributed consistently to economic growth, including through periods of recent instability, such as the global financial crisis and the COVID pandemic. The economic footprint of public schools in Australia extends well beyond the direct expenditure on schools and salaries for school staff. Public schools also purchase massive quantities of supplies and services from a wide range of other businesses and sectors. These include purchases of supplies and equipment for teaching, construction and maintenance materials and services, and a range of other utility business and administrative services. These purchases extend the economic impact of public schools' activities through all sectors and regions of the national economy. We refer to these expenditures on goods and services from the school system's supply chain as an upstream or indirect benefit. An estimate of the upstream supply chain benefits can be derived from ABS data on input-output linkages between different industries in Australia's economy. The ABS input-output database does not provide separate data for public schools, which are consolidated within the broader primary and secondary education services category, which includes preschools. Based on the assumption that the quantity and mix of supply purchases is broadly similar for public schools as for the overall sector, the upstream purchases of public schools can be estimated a proportion of total schools' purchases. The public school share of this overall education sector supply chain is then estimated on the basis of proportional enrolment sizes. As with the estimates of public school labour compensation, this is a conservative approach in that it assumes all equivalent input purchases per student across all areas of combined primary, secondary and preschool education sector. In reality, input purchases are likely proportionately smaller in preschool settings in which case the data underestimates the true upstream impact of public school spending. ABS input-output data indicates that primary and secondary schooling institution purchases inputs and supplies from over 100 different industry groupings. This supply chain reaches into every major sector and region of the national economy. Together, all these upstream sectors receive almost $10 billion worth of sales per year from public schools, contributing substantially to their own output, employment and profits. High-quality, well-resourced public school education also supports a suite of wider fiscal and social benefits. As reviewed in the literature survey, there is abundant evidence that people with more education tend to experience better health outcomes and are less likely to depend on income supports and other social programs through their lives and are less likely to have interactions with the criminal justice system. As health, welfare and criminal justice costs are covered by state, territory and federal budgets, the savings derived from a well-educated working population benefits governments and the broader population of taxpayers, in addition to the direct benefits of improved health and security for high school graduates. There are many other broader social benefits supported by high-quality public education, including greater social cohesion, less inequality, and stronger democratic participation. 
these social and fiscal benefits could be even more significant. It will require ongoing research to better understand and quantify them. These broader social and fiscal benefits of improved schooling are most evident for students from lower socioeconomic families, and this constitutes another important channel through which improved public schooling improves social equality. Public school students are more likely to come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds compared to private schools. The importance of quality public schooling is critical for students from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. School completion rates are significantly lower for Indigenous students than non-Indigenous students. In 2021, 68% of young Indigenous adults aged 20 to 24 had completed high school, compared to 91% of non-Indigenous people in the same age group. That 23-point gap in completion cascades into continuing disadvantage in employment, incomes and health throughout Indigenous peoples' lives, with negative consequence for national economic performance as well. In 2022, 82% of Aboriginal and Torres Torres Strait Island students attended public schools. Over 8% of all students in public schools are Indigenous compared to 3% in private schools. Well-resourced public schools are thus essential for improving school attainment among Indigenous youth. Research has pointed to the need for better resourcing in schools, including facilities, teachers and tailored supports such as individual tutoring and mentoring. Understandably, attempting to quantify these wide-ranging and long-lasting benefits is challenging given their heterogeneous nature and long-run effect. Nevertheless, rigorous research confirms that these benefits are both substantial and verifiable. Some very interesting data and statistics in that article. Back over to you, Jean. Thank you very much, uh, Sorrel. Very interesting the Australia Institute is doing that kind of research. But, of course, other research is indicating that uh, the private sector have been uh, playing mayhem with the accountability issues in Australia with consultants, but also we know how the, uh, particularly the Catholic system, have uh, rorted the needs policy system for the last 60 years such that their needs are in fact their greeds. But the same thing is now happening over in the United States with their so-called voucher system. And uh, Jeff is going to tell us about that. And he's also going to tell us about another scandal that's erupted in, in the UK where um, faulty concrete in a number of schools means that those schools are having to close because they are just plain dangerous. Over to you, Jeff. Thanks, Jean. And today our theme for the listener is scandals in education. To keep the ball rolling, we're going to go to America to our wonderful Diana Ravitch blog, And Diana wrote on the 1st of September, Florida vouchers pay for TVs, Disney passes and water sports. Diana Rovich writes, Florida vouchers pay for TVs, Disney passes and water sports. The Orlando Sentinel reported that the $8,000 voucher handed out to every student in a non-public school may be used for non-educational purposes. Florida endorsed universal vouchers, so family income doesn't matter. Rich families get vouchers too, just so long as their children do not attend a public school. 
As Florida law lawmakers expanded eligibility for school vouchers this year, they also gave parents more ways to spend the money. Theme park passes, 55-inch TVs and stand-up paddleboards are among the approved items that recipients can buy to use at home. The purchases can be made by parents who homeschool their children or send them to private schools if any voucher money remains after paying tuition and fees. The items appear in a list of authorised expenses in a 13-page purchasing guide published this summer by Step Up for Students, the scholarship funding organisation that manages the bulk of Florida's vouchers. Many of the items are similar to what was permitted for vouchers to students with disabilities in the past, but now they're available to anyone who receives an award of about $8,000 US. If we saw school districts spending money like that, we would be outraged, said Damaris Allen, Executive Director of Families for Strong Public Schools, who recently started speaking out publicly on the issue. We want to be conservative with our tax dollars. We want to be sure it is being used for worthwhile things. By comparison, Allen and others noted, teachers who want some of the same items for their classrooms would have to pay out of pocket or turn to other fundraising sources such as GoFundMe because schools won't pay for them. Supporters of the expansion don't consider the program as wasting taxpayer money. They see it as allowing families to customise education according to their children's interests. Uh, now we're going to nip across to the UK where another scandal awaits us. And this has got to do with the recent blow-up in Parliament, especially, of the scandal over the lack of funding for maintenance and response to failing building materials in the UK for schools and hospitals, but mainly schools. It involves the building material called RAAC, which stands for Reinforced Autoclaved Aerated Concrete. Now, this is a light material... But in the 1990s, they identified a major structural problem with it, and that was that when you make large slabs of this stuff, they reinforce it with steel. If it's protected from the weather, there's no problems. If it's used as an internal building wall, that sort of thing. Anyway, I'm bringing this back to education, not trust me. So what happens is they used it for walls, but they also used it for roofs. And the trick is you've got to keep the roof maintained so that water can't get into it, whether it's using some sort of material that well, has to be sealed so that water can't get in, because the water passes through the concrete like a sponge, gets to the reinforcing iron and rusts uh, the iron, which then causes it to spoil and, and become structurally unsound. Now, this was first identified in the early 90s, or the mid-90s, sorry, but 95, 96, it was actually reported that major works were needed to be looked at uh, right across the UK in schools and hospitals where this had been used, and other government buildings, including courthouses, um, so that it could collapse without any warning uh, if it becomes structurally unsound. So um, this article comes from The Independent, and Gillian Keegan is the Minister for Education, and she got caught on a hot mic moment. This is uh, from the Independent article by John Stone, Archie Mitchell and Adam Forrest. So uh, just another bit of background. Um, it was really discovered in 2017-2018 when a roof collapsed in a primary school down in Kent and they discovered that this, was, this problem that had been identified back in the 90s still hadn't been addressed. 
then just this summer, a beam which had looked perfect completely collapsed without warning in a school. Luckily, no students were there, no one was hurt. But this has caused the closure now of up to 104 schools and maybe three or 400 schools now in the UK. So the article says, pressure is mounting on Richie Sunak after his education secretary was caught on camera saying others had sat on their asses over collapsing schools. Julianne Keegan was filmed voicing her frustrations about the response to the RAAC concrete scandal after it emerged that Mr Sunak had cut funding for school rebuilding. In footage released by ITV News, Miss Keegan, still wearing her microphone, criticised others and said she should be praised for doing a good job. She said, does anyone say, you know, you know what, you've done an effing good job because everyone else has sat on their asses and done nothing? The Education Secretary added, no signs of that, no? The extraordinary outburst comes after Mr Sunak earlier said it was utterly wrong to blame him for the RAAC scandal, despite it being emerging that he had cut funding to renew school estate while Chancellor. Mr. Ms Keegan later apologised and said she was not referring to anyone in particular when she complained about other people having sat on their asses and done nothing on the uh, concrete crisis in schools. The Education Secretary told broadcasters it was an off-the-cuff remark made after the interviewer had pressed her quite hard, she said. Insisting that he was not to blame, uh, he was not blaming other ministers or schools, she was not <laughs> blaming other ministers or schools, she added, it's also frustrating that we've got some questionnaires that are still not there. We've been chasing and chasing them. We've written again today to say you need to get your questionnaires in by the end of the week. Labor's shadow schools minister, Stephen Morgan, said, this is a staggering admission that Rishi Sunak and the Conservatives have done nothing to address a problem that they have known about for years, he said. Meanwhile, opposition leader Keir Starmer told broadcasters that the whole situation was descending into farce. You've got members of the Cabinet coming out trying to blame other people, trying to blame people within their own teams, and to say, essentially, put responsibility anywhere but on the government, he said. That's not what Britain deserves... And obviously, what is now being said shows the extent to which there is this passing the buck within Cabinet. Is Rishi Shunak strong enough to do anything about it? I doubt it. One senior Tory extraordinarily suggested Miss Keegan was trying to make a splash to boost her profile in the case of leadership election in the wake of next year's general election. The MP told The Independent, I think she's trying to make an impact personally in a bid to stand out and line herself up for the leadership post-general election. Labor quickly turned Mrs Keegan's comments into its latest personal attack advert against Mr Sunak, just days after publishing a poster claiming the PM does not want schools to be safe. The clip also included comments from Jonathan Slater, the former top civil servant at the Department of Education, who this morning revealed that officials were aware of the need to rebuild between 300 and 400 schools a year while Mr Sunak was in the Treasury from 2019 to 2022. He told BBC Radio 4's Today program the Department of Education was denied the funding to fix the schools. It was frustrating, said Mr Slater, whose voice was breaking with emotion, as he spoke of his frustration at the way his pleas had fallen on deaf ears. He said the Ministry had asked for cash to rebuild three to 400 schools per year after discovering the scale of the crumbling concrete crisis but the Treasury would only provide money for 100 a year. And in 2021, when Mr Sunak was Chancellor, it was cut further to just 50, though the Department had asked it to be doubled to 200 for safety reasons. Mr Slater said he was absolutely amazed at the decision made by the Chancellor. Asked to spell out who was the Chancellor, he replied, Rishi Sunak.
But Mr Sunak told broadcasters on Monday, one of the first things I did as Chancellor in my first spending review in 2020 was to announce a new 10-year school rebuilding program for 500 schools. Now that equates to about 50 schools a year that will be refurbished or rebuilt. If you look at what we have been doing over the previous decade, that's completely in line with what we have always done. The respected Institute for Fiscal Studies, IFS, think tank, said the average capital spending on schools is 50% below its 2010 peak. Spending on school buildings is, is low in historical terms and low compared with levels of need, said IFS research fellow Luke Sabieta. The National Audit Office reported that the Department of Education calculated it needed about £5.3 billion per year from 21 to 25 in order to maintain school buildings and mitigate risks. It instead requested £4 billion per year based on the rate at which it could increase spending. Magistry's Treasury allocated only about £3.1 billion per year. And Mr Slater's shocking intervention comes as millions of pupils return to school this week despite fears that thousands more buildings are at risk of collapse from crumbling concrete. Chancellor Jeremy Hunt on Sunday refused to be drawn on how many buildings were affected as he rejected accusations that government cuts were to blame. With over 100 schools, this is me now, but with over 100 schools literally closing in the UK, they're actually getting kids to move back to uh, COVID-19 procedures uh, in many of them. Literally, the UK schools are crumbling. Anyway, with all those scandals, I'll get back, pass it back to you now, Jean. Thanks, Jeff. And now for our good news story, the Great State School of the Week. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the Week. State school. School of the Week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the Week. School for the Week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's Great State School of the Week is Glen Huntley Primary School. Glen Huntley Primary School is a very highly rated primary school in Glen Huntley, Glen Ira, Victoria. The public school has 370 students with a student to teacher ratio of 1 to 12. Glen Huntley Primary is a Victorian government co-ed school in the suburb of Glen Huntley. GHPS are proud of providing a caring and challenging learning environment for their students. A new website's been developed from the ground up that features a new online newsletter, video content from the principal and staff along with an online booking form. Throughout the site, friendly imagery and creative writing is used to showcase the local, relaxed atmosphere of the school itself. The new website has resulted in a 54% increase in traffic and differentiates GHPS in a crowded and competitive education market landscape. Now some facts and figures from the Akara My School website. The school has 272 students and the ICSIA value of the school is 1,151, which is well above the average of 1,000. This is a well-heeled community. 65% of students have parents from the upper 25% in income. Uh, 25% in the second highest quartile, 7% from the third quartile, and 3% of students from the poorest 
25% of the community. But 73% of the students speak a language other than English at home and 1% are of Indigenous parentage. This is a school full of advantaged students with dedicated students principal and teachers. It costs the taxpayer $12,929, about the Gonski resource standard, to educate a student at this school. The school receives $723,000 from the federal government and $2.8 million from the state government, $155,000 from fees and $264,000 from private fundraising. But the capital grants in the last three years for the old school have been $3.16 million. All this public and private money is money well spent. The NAPLAN results of these students are more than just fine. They are above average in most areas and the improvement of the students over time is greater than that of similar schools. So congratulations to the dedicated staff at this school in Glen Huntley. You are the Dogs Program's Great State School of the Week. Our time is gone and it's time now to say goodbye and to remind you if you want to hear more about us you can go to www.adogs.info Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill went on to organize. Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill It's there you find
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.